There are actually um, four important lessons on this passage that, that are more than academic, that are actually really important for us to uh, wrap our minds around and wrap our lives around. And uh, uh, these are the lessons I'd, I'd like to draw out for us today, four topics that the scripture speaks on. Um, first, it teaches us something about the mission of God. Second, something about the culture. Third, something about the church. And as we talk about the church, we're going to go down a little cul-de-sac and talk about the Holy Spirit for a little while. Does that sound all right? All right. So first, I want us to notice something about the mission of God. And um, we might start by asking, what is the mission that the church had been given? And in order to know that, um, I recommend flipping back to Acts chapter 1, um, which is on page 909. If you want to get out a Bible, that would be a good thing. 909, Jesus is just about to ascend to heaven, and he's going to tell his apostles what the mission of the church is. So look down with me at verse 8. This is really the mission statement for the whole book of Acts. It says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So this is talking about they're, they're going to wait. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon them. This is, this is about Pentecost, the Holy Spirit empowering them from on high. Um, and it says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, so that's phase one, and Samaria, that's phase two, and then the ends of the earth. And, and actually, if you flip through the rest of the book of Acts, you'll see that um, the church really follows this mission that Jesus has laid out for them. For, so for the first several chapters, we see the church primarily, actually only, in Jerusalem, a little bit of Judea. And then there's a, there's a Samaritan phase of the mission, and then the mission continues to expand to the ends of the earth, which for the Jewish people would have certainly been the city of Rome, which is where the book of Acts ends. Now, um, now we might want to ask ourselves at this point, because we're seven full chapters in uh, to the book of Acts, and um, from what it looks like, not only have they not, um, not only have they not started into the second phase of the mission to Samaria. I mean, the mission in Jerusalem and Judea has been going great, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit's been upon them, and they've been preaching, and the church has grown to thousands and thousands of people. But not only have they not started in the mission of Samaria, it doesn't seem like they're talking about it or praying about it or anything, right? I mean, it's like doesn't even seem like it's on their grid. And so we might wonder, like, what's happened? It seems like the church has gotten complacent. What happened about Samaria? What happened about the ends of the earth? Um, you know, the church had this great start, but it installed in the mission. Um, how could this be? And how did the church end up getting shaken out of its sense of complacency, we might ask? Um, We'll turn now, um, let's flip forward a little bit to Acts chapter 1, chapter 8, verse 1, excuse me, it's our passage for today, page 916. So Acts chapter 1, verse 1, um, we see Saul approving of the execution of Stephen. Last week, Chris Royer preached powerfully to us on the topic of martyrdom. He shared about some friends that he had that were martyred. Um, well, what we just got at the end of Acts chapter 7 is the story of the first martyr in the church. And we meet Saul here in Acts chapter 1 who's approving of this execution. And um, we haven't really met Saul yet. We're kind of wondering, okay, who's Saul? It doesn't really go into it here. But he's actually going to be that ends of the earth missionary guy. 
So just kind of put a finger there and, and, and just sort of pause and wait. We'll come back to that, it's saying, all right? Um, but as we read on, uh, it says this. It says, um, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So not only was Stephen persecuted, but that just sort of popped the cork, guys. <laughs> You know, and, and the persecution really started to heat up and people started getting stoned and their houses were ravaged and both men and women were being dragged out and persecuted. And Saul, as he mentioned in our reading from 1 Timothy, he calls himself the least of the apostles. He's not worthy to be an apostle because he persecuted the church. That's still on his conscience decades later that he had participated in the early persecution of the church. But skipping down to verse 4, we notice there's something interesting that happens when the church scatters. Somebody steps on the ant mound, and all of a sudden the ant starts scattering to new places, right? It says in verse 4, those who were scattered, what do they do? Walk about scared and lurk in the shadows and hid the light under a basket. No! It says those who were scattered went about preaching the word. All right, so full stop. So on the heels of Stephen's martyrdom and this great persecution, um, what we see is that the church's enemies accidentally launched the church into the second phase of the mission. You notice that? It wasn't the church that was like, what's the most strategic thing for us to do next? No, they were starting to get complacent. And they weren't even, the Gentiles weren't even on their heart. The ends of the earth wasn't even on their heart. And their enemies made a move and overplayed their hand and shot themselves in the foot. See, the enemies didn't know the story behind the story that the sovereign Lord was writing. They had no idea that their evil intentions were playing directly into God's sovereign plan. And isn't this so like God to do things this way? I mean, isn't this the story of our salvation? Jesus is betrayed by his friend with a kiss, but the enemy doesn't know. The enemy that's inspiring Judas doesn't know that Jesus is going on to purchase the salvation of the whole world. I, I, love, I love how that symbolism is brought out in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Where, uh, where the, you know, the, the white witch, she makes this deal with Aslan, and she said, and, and Aslan, we don't, we don't know what the deal was. They're, they're in this tent, they make this deal, and she comes out, and you find out, oh, this is terrible. Aslan is going to die in Edmund's place. It's like, we don't really need Edmund for this battle, Aslan. We need you. Uh, but he was so passionate that Edmund be saved that he offered to die as a substitute. But what the white witch didn't know is that what she was doing with the dagger and killing Aslan was sealing her own, her own fate. Right? So the Lord has this ability to let the enemy gain ground and then just completely flip the script. Right? I, uh, I wonder, um, I, I, let, me, let me give you an analogy. Um, if you came upon somebody and they were just a master chess player, you ever walk around Lake Ella and you see that table where people are playing chess, they look pretty serious. I always want to like stop and sit down and play with them, but I'm like, these guys are going to wax me. <laughs> right? like, but just, just imagine you come across like a master chess player, and, uh, and, he's, and he's looking really seriously at the game, and he's stroking his chin, and he makes a move, but you don't, he's not actually playing against anybody. 
right? And then he turns the board around <laughs> and looks really seriously at the board for an hour, <laughs> considers it, and makes his best move. And if it was me, I'd be like, hey, like, what are you doing, <laughs> right? And, and let's, just, let's just say this master chess player said to you, um, well, I only play against myself. And you said, why? And he said, well, it just ensures victory. <laughs> okay, now, 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 hypothetically speaking, let's think about another situation, all right, where there's this master chess player, and anybody you send against them, it doesn't matter if it's the smartest guy in Russia. I don't know, I figure there's probably good chess players in Russia, it seems like <laughs> Uh, it doesn't matter who you send against this guy, nobody can beat them. And, and maybe, somebody, maybe sometimes he lets somebody get a pawn, maybe sometimes he lets somebody get a bishop or a rook, but then as you're watching the game, you realize he had this person on his hook the whole time. He let them take these pieces, but he had the game in hand the whole time. Now, I, I ask you this question. Um, which chess player would you walk away being more impressed with? The one who's playing chess against himself, or the one that no matter who his enemy was, he always seemed to win? Which one? Yeah, the second one, right? That would be the more impressive one. I'll wager you'd be more impressed with that one. And I would be too. Well, I think God's sovereignty is more like that second example. It's not that no other being has been given agency. Of course, the devil has. Human beings have been given free will, and not everything we do is in line with God's will. I, I think this is something that we have sloppy theology about, guys. Not everything. Do you know sin? You know what sin is? When somebody does something that's not God's will. To say that God willed sin is blasphemous nonsense. But here's the thing. What we can, what we can say about God's sovereignty and what we see in this passage is that God's ultimate will is never in, in jeopardy. It's never thwarted. And in fact, even when his enemies turn up the heat, they find out that they're turning up the heat and they're in the oven. <laughs> He's too powerful. He's too clever. It's not fair. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's not only the best player, and there's really no competition, guys. <laughs> but he also knows the future. And he invented the game. <laughs> That's why nothing can stop the mission of the church. Not even a complacent church. Not even her most violent enemies. Jesus said that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And brothers and sisters, you can book the ticket. It's going to happen. All nations, you know, Chris was talking last week about there's still being people groups who have no gospel witness. A gospel witness is going to get to them. I guarantee you. Not because there's no opponent that's going to step to the board, but because God's the best. He's the smartest. He knows. Daniel 4.35 puts it this way. The Lord does according to his will. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or as one poet puts it more simply, my God is a working man. 
None can stay his hand. My God is a working man. None can stay his hand. That's what true sovereignty is. Not that there is no other hand, no other opponent, but that none can stay the hand of the Almighty. They have no chance. And this is what Acts 8 teaches us about the mission of God, that ultimately, ultimately it's never truly in jeopardy. Our sovereign God will eventually have his way. And this is important for us to remember, whether we're leading a missional community or trying sometimes it feels like in vain to be a blessing to the poor or to share, our, share the gospel with our friends or our neighbors or a loved family member. We're called to pray. We're called to believe. We're called to sacrificially love. But ultimately, the success of God's ultimate mission is never in doubt. His presence will cover the, wor the world as the waters cover the sea, the prophets say. And this should be a comfort to us too when we face trials and resistance. As Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. And we don't oftentimes quote the second half of that verse. What does it say? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. In other words, chillax. <laughs> God's kingship does not depend upon you. Okay, so that's the first point. Something about the mission. That our sovereign God will accomplish what he set out to accomplish. Second, this passage teaches us something about culture. And it's a kind of a complex message. I wonder if we can hold all these points in our head. Because oftentimes it feels like part of this spills out. And that is that all cultures are flawed and fallen. But also, no culture is beyond the saving reach of God. So all people, right, were created in the image of God, though that image has been marred by sin. But Christ came to purchase people from every nation. The story is told of a missionary, uh, a great missionary, Floyd McClung, who worked with YWAM for a while. He's uh, started this um, worldwide mission movement called All Nations. And uh, when he was a younger missionary, he... Um, was ministering to prostitutes in the red light district of Amsterdam. Him and his family were there for many years. And uh, one day he's on the streets and he's doing ministry and he comes across this fiery young preacher who's holding his Bible and pointing at people and really preaching predominantly a message of condemnation. And after listening to him a while, uh, Floyd comes up to the young preacher and he asks him two questions. He says, um, uh, let me ask you a question. Um, brother, do you ever weep for this city? And the man said, no. And he said, um, well, let me ask you another question. Is there anything about this city that you find beautiful? And the man said, no. I mean, it's all just evil. And this, these people are going to hell in a handbag. And Floyd answered him, then you're not fit to preach in this city. If you can't weep for these people, if you can't see the image of God in them, then you're not fit to preach for these people. This younger preacher had never learned this dual truth about all human culture. 
We're all flawed and fallen, yes. But we all in some way still reflect the image of God. And we're not too far for God to save us. There's perhaps no people group in the New Testament that makes this lesson more clear than the Samaritans. Right? I mean, the historic hostility between Jews and Samaritans is well documented. The issues are not just cultural, they're racial, they're religious. Um, the Samaritans rejected the authority of most of the Old Testament. They intermarried with pagan people. They offered sacrifices on an alternate mountain, an alternate Jerusalem, which they called Mount Gerizim. And their culture was a blend, really, of pagan rituals and witchcraft and some of the books of Moses. And for all these reasons, the Samaritans had basically a subhuman status among the Jews in Jesus' day. Uh, think of the way that uh, the child of a black man and a white woman would have, uh, think, think of the status that they would have had in the Civil War South. And that might kind of give you an idea of how the Samaritans were viewed. The Samaritans not only had no status, they were viewed as irreparably polluted in both culture and in race. So the Jewish people completely avoided him. You, you remember what the Samaritan woman said to Jesus at the well? She said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? And then John puts this little side note to kind of sum up the relationship. He said, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You remember that? But Jesus wasn't like that, was he? We just heard in our gospel reading today, he liked to tell stories where the Samaritans were the heroes. <laughs> I wonder if that got in their crawl. They were like, you know, who's my neighbor, though? I'm going to test you. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus is like, um, uh, how many creators are there? Do you think you were created in the image of God and they weren't? Do you think they're subhuman? Do you think God doesn't long to be in a relationship with them? He didn't say that exactly. <laughs> but he told a really good story that made all those points better than I can make them. So perhaps it's not surprising that the early mission of the church stalled on this very point. When they were supposed to be going into phase two to be a light to the Samaritans. They were like, ugh, I don't know what this <laughs> Because first you have to humanize them, guys. First you have to humanize them. Could it be that God really cares about them? About their salvation? About their culture? Could it, could it be that God cares as much about their sons and daughters as he does about ours? It was clear that Jesus believed this. And now finally with Philip, we meet the first disciple who saw the Samaritans with Jesus' eyes. Amen? In verse 5, it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, the Messiah. And of course, Philip wasn't even one of the twelve, right? He wasn't an apostle. He was one of the seven deacons appointed with Stephen in Acts 6. But he became, really, the first missionary to non-Jewish people. The first missionary that we find in the New Testament actually wasn't Paul. It was Philip, who's later called Philip the Evangelist. He was a trailblazer when it came to the church's cross-cultural mission. You know, usually today, um, I think we view evangelism as this sort of like narrow-minded activity. That like, you only do evangelism because you think your people group is somehow superior to another's. 
But isn't it interesting that it was actually the opposite was the case in Philip's day, right? The reason why he shared the gospel with the Samaritans is because he believed, man, they're created in the image of God too. They need a relationship with God in the same way that we are. God loves them and cares about them, and Jesus died for them the same way that he died for us. Right? It wasn't from conservative, closed-minded narrowness that he was doing evangelism. It was because he was broad enough to see the purposes of God. I think um, when we're sharing the gospel with our friends, we have to remember this, guys. When we're sharing the gospel with our family members, when we're inviting people to church, it's not because you think you're better than them. It's not because you think you sin less or because you think you come from a culture that sins less than their culture. It's because you believe that there's one creator. Right? As Ephesians 4 says, one God and Father of us all, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Uh, last weekend, um, I was at Synod, and for those of you guys who got to go there, I hope you got to sit through Esau Macaulay's uh, seminar on the Book of Romans and multi-ethnic ministry, because it was very powerful. And one of the things that he talked about was how the Book of Romans, in its essence, preaches a gospel that crosses ethnic barriers, that that's what's going on. And actually, in the Book of Romans, what happens is... Um, Paul is writing this letter to a church that has both Jews and Gentiles in it. And in chapter 1, he makes all these statements about how sinful the Gentiles are and all the, all the nasty things that the Gentiles do. And, you know, at this point, the Jewish people in the church, because there's some tension going on, they might be saying, like, amen. Those guys are a bunch of sinners, right? And, uh, and but then, right, right, as, right as Paul has them, he says, he flips the script in chapter 2, and he's like, yeah, but what about you guys? Let's talk about this a little bit. You receive the law, but do you follow the law? And then he goes into all these reasons why they, too, need a Savior. And triumphantly, he arrives at um, chapter 3, verse 22. He says, for there is no distinction. Why is there no distinction? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus as a gift. Not because we're better. Not because our deeds were better. Not because our culture was better or that our race is pure. Skipping down to verse 27, I have to keep reading because this is just too good. <laughs> Paul says, well then what becomes of our boasting? Can any culture or ethnicity hold themselves as superior to another? What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded, he says. It's excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No. By the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only, Paul asks. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the Gentiles also, since God is one. It's not like half of me is the God of the Gentiles. Or I created a minor deity to rule over these other people groups. No, God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith 
and the uncircumcised through faith. It's the great leveler, guys. That is the gospel. <coughs> a few years back, Carissa and I um, went with a group of, of students in InterVarsity um, on this mission trip to Mexico. And we were going there to learn from some really amazing things that they were doing, some amazing work they were doing among the poor there. And to kind of learn um, from some of their mission. And um, as we had these processing times, um, what came out is that a lot of the people who went on the trip, they realized and began to be honest that they had gone to Mexico with some biases against the Mexican people. <laughs> and, uh, and they started to express this and confess this. And, you know, it just kind of became clear that, like, they had gone to Mexico thinking, like, the Mexican people, like, really need Jesus. Like, we kind of need Jesus, but they really need Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Seems like a different doctrine than Paul was preaching. But, um, but, uh, but, but uh, what happened was, as we continued to hang out with the Mexican people and dance with them and play soccer with them and watch the World Cup and, and, and began to learn more about their culture, people started to fall in love with the Mexican people. And then instead of getting good at theology, they started to say, but what are we doing in the U.S.? Like, we're just a bunch of sinners, and these churches that sent us here are a bunch of sinners, and we're irreparably damaged, and these Mexican people could never do a wrong thing. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what, I, I, like, I, I don't know if that's a quote, but it's pretty close. <laughs> so, the problem is, is that neither of these views, neither the view that they brought or the view that they were expressing in that moment could pass the theological test of Romans. Because neither view represents the truth of the gospel. The truth is that all cultures are flawed and fallen, but also no culture is beyond the redemptive purposes of God. No person is beyond the saving reach of God. So that's the second thing, something about culture. Third, something about the church. And this flows from what we've just been talking about, which is that the church is one. The church is one. It's not that there's, it's not just that there's one creator and one savior. From this passage, it's also clear that there's one church. What do I mean? Well, first we see the Samaritans responding to the gospel. And this would have been surprising enough to many in the church of Jerusalem. Verse 12 said that the, says that the Samaritans believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And it says they were baptized, both men and women. However... The next step for the newly baptized Samaritans was not to establish their own church that existed independently from the one in Jerusalem. No! Despite their geographical and cultural distance from the Jerusalem church, they didn't decide to start the Samaritan church of Mount Gerizim. Or even worse, the first church of St. Philip. This would have been unthinkable to the early church. They didn't think the way that we think, guys. Where it's like, I don't even disagree with these people, but I'm going to start a new denomination. <laughs> because while the Samaritans remained culturally distinct, they knew that they had been grafted into the one family of God under Christ. The famous Anglican Michael, Michael Green refers to this passage as a divine veto on schism in the infant church. So what does he mean by this? Look with me at verse 14. It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem, so they're 30 miles south, 
says they heard that Samaria, Samaria had received the word of God, what did they do? They sent Peter and John. These apostolic leaders, they played a crucial role in the wider movement, and after the apostles died, bishops would emerge to fill this leadership gap. People like Timothy and Titus, who were appointed by the Apostle Paul. Or second century bishops like Ignatius and Polycarp, who were appointed by the Apostle John. And Polycarp taught Irenaeus, and on and on down the line, until we get to Bishop Neil Labar in 2017. <laughs> yes, I'm not joking. Right? That was the pattern of the church from the beginning. And actually, in this passage, we see the apostles do three things that would become standard practice for later bishops. First, they verify and validate new missions. There's this new mission. They didn't plant it. They didn't even plan it. But they're just coming to see how it is, to verify it, and to bring the people into the fellowship, right? So when they receive the word... When they heard that the Samaritans had received the word, they visited the work in person to see if it was a true gospel community. The question of responsible inquirers and doubters back in Jerusalem had to be addressed. This was a strange new thing. Samaritans and the people of God? Did the Samaritans really believe in the same Christ? That's what they're wondering. You know, had they received the same Holy Spirit? So it fell to the apostles to certify the work of God. As one scholar put it, it had to be demonstrated uh, that the Samaritans, beyond any shadow of a doubt, had really become members of the church. Second, the apostles incorporated these new believers, incorporated, they brought them into the body through the laying on of hands. And this is what the church today would refer to as confirmation, where a bishop comes to lay hands on adult believers Ask the Holy Spirit to stir up the gift of God in them and receives them into the flock. Now, I want to go on a little cul-de-sac here. Let's see how little it is. I think one of the most fascinating uh, uh, issues in this passage is um, why was it that the Holy Spirit didn't come upon the Samaritans until after the apostles got there and laid hands on them? And I think one of the real mistakes that we can make, and I say this, to incarnation, I feel like we have to hear this, we, we have to know this passage, because we have a lot of charismatics in this church, right? And I love that. I love that we call on the Holy Spirit. I love that we believe that he can do miraculous things here today, but we got to get our theology right, all right? And um, what we find is, um, is that um, oftentimes denominations will form around a certain way of saying, this is how the Holy Spirit works, when that doesn't jive with two-thirds of the rest of the examples in the book of Acts. All right, so we zero in on a passage and we say, this is how the Holy Spirit works, this is how the Holy Spirit always works. But there's not a systematic thing being laid, about, laid out in the book of Acts as to how this is how the Holy Spirit works. I mean, how, like, let, let's just ask, for example, how does the Holy Spirit and baptism relate to one another? In Acts chapter 2, the people say, they're cut to the heart, they say, what shall we do? Peter says, be baptized Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So the gospel that Peter was preaching to them, the message that Peter was preaching to them, is that baptism and being filled with the Holy Spirit were synonymous. Right? And then later on, we come to the book of Acts chapter, excuse me, we come to Acts chapter 8, and these people had believed the gospel. There's no indication in the opening verses of this chapter that they had been preached an inauthentic gospel or that they didn't really believe. Right? They just hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. And then we zoom forward to Acts chapter 10, 
where Peter is preaching amongst the first Gentile converts, and the Holy Spirit comes on them, and they start speaking in tongues even before they're baptized. So it happens at the same time. It happens after. It happens before. What is it? Right? Well, I think part of the answer is that um, the Holy Spirit does what he wants. <laughs> and we don't get to automatically apply the third person of the Trinity at our beck and call. But, but there's not just that. Because there's something going on in the book of Acts as the mission of God is unfolding. And I don't want us to miss this because we look at the book of Acts and we say, hey, we should imitate that. And that's true. But we need to understand that there was a very unique, this was a very unique epoch-shifting time, right? A, a good example would be this, all right? Um, um, in Jesus' ministry, sometimes he gave the impression and even said outrightly that people were saved. You know, Jesus said, salvation has come to this house when he enters Zacchaeus' house. Now, did Zacchaeus believe that Jesus had died on the cross for the forgiveness of his sins? No. No, because Jesus hadn't even died on the cross yet. So how can we say that Zacchaeus was saved? Does that mean that in our preaching and teaching from now on, we should say, well, you don't need to believe that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins? No! <laughs> Jesus was the king, and he could stare directly into human hearts, and if he wanted to use the keys to open salvation to Zacchaeus, he could. But we know that the way that we're saved is by preaching the, go the gospel of Christ crucified. Preaching, believing that by faith, that's how we're saved. But it was a different, it was a different era, it was a different epoch that you know this the crucifixion hadn't happened the resurrection hadn't happened well a similar thing is going on here in the book of acts when the holy spirit falls on the church in acts chapter 2 it's not just because they were praying hard and we should ask the holy spirit to fall for the first time again no it was a unique moment this was the beginning of jeremiah 31 it was the beginning of the new covenant it was the fulfillment of joel 2 when the holy spirit fell on all flesh Male and female, servants and free, you know, and everybody calls, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that, that season in God's salvation history has already been opened up. We can't ask for Pentecost to happen again. It's already happened. No, we can ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh. Or we can ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us for the first time if we don't believe we've ever received the Holy Spirit. But we can't redo Pentecost. And there's something very peculiar that's going on in these first chapters of Acts. The Holy Spirit is trying to verify to the church that what they're doing, which is, feels very, very risky and new, is actually of God. That's what's going on here. They've never had people in their community. They've never had people that they fully included that were a part of their community that were not Jewish. And so it's like the Holy Spirit is like, hold on a second. I want John and Peter to see this. <laughs> And in fact, in, verse, uh, in chapter, two, uh, chapter 8, verse 14, when it talks about how they received the word, that's almost a technical term in the book of Acts. That's used in Acts chapter 2 when the first Jews received the word. That's used in Acts chapter 8 when the first Samaritans received the word. That's used in Acts chapter 10 when the first Gentiles received the word. And guess who's there in all three instances? Peter. So he can go back to the church in Jerusalem and say... How can we withhold from, a baptism from them? They've received the same Holy Spirit that we have. Do you understand? So I'm not saying that it's never the case that the Holy Spirit might wait to fill somebody until after they've been baptized. But it's bad theology if we take this passage to mean that, oh, well, at some point in time you believe in Jesus. And then later on, 10 years later, even though you've been following Jesus, I can say, have you ever received the Holy Spirit? I know you're saved, but have you ever received the Holy Spirit? 
Come on, guys. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. Because you have to be reborn again. You have to be made a child of God by the spirit of adoption. So that's not this kind of two-step theology of salvation. That's just not good theology. It's not good reading of Scripture. All right, we're going to get back on the path. Third. We see the apostles exercising church discipline. When a rich and powerful enemy named Simon the Magician tries to compromise the newborn Samaritan church, Peter exercises the power of the keys and puts this man in his place. And this is something that bishops do today, too. They exercise church discipline. They make tough decisions. Even though Simon the Magician was baptized, no, he was baptized. He tried to purchase the power of God, but the Holy Spirit was not for sale. Right? So Peter says to him in verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Now Peter couldn't you know, see the invisible mysteries of God, but from every evidence of his interaction with Simon the Magician, he's like, bro, I know you were baptized, but you're not one of us. If you think you're going to come to me and have like this sidebar conversation about buying the gift of the Holy Spirit, and actually, throughout the history of the church after this, when somebody would try to abuse the church by purchasing ecclesial office, especially the office of bishop, guess what that's called? Simony. And it's based on this passage. So we see that the overarching leadership of the apostles played a connective function, connecting one believer to another. The early church was one, not just because they would sort of sign off on similar beliefs, not just because they had similar, similar rituals like baptism. They were one because they were answerable to the same leaders. Peter and John and later Paul. They were meant to be a part of one translocal community. The connection was not just spiritual. It was actually organic. The early church would have never interpreted the oneness of the church as just a spiritual mystical thing. They believed that they were one because they were a part of the same community. And if there's somebody who didn't believe what they believed, like in Acts 15 when they make this decision about um, circumcision, if there were churches that, that are like, well, we still think people need to be circumcised to be saved, they would have been like, okay, well, we understand that, but you're not a part of the church because that's a different gospel. And so they had a different understanding of what the oneness of the church was. When we say in our creed that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I bet you, we tend to spiritualize the meaning of that. We say we're spiritually one, even though we don't really believe uh, we have to answer to our brothers and sisters over at the Lutheran church down the road. Right? If they confront us with something biblical, we say, well, pff, I don't know them. Or even though if our church refuses to perform a remarriage for us, or bars us from Holy Communion because we're not actually following Jesus with our life, we just say, oh, well, we'll just go to the Methodists. They'll do it. Brothers and sisters, our current state of division in the church is not the way that God intended it to be. It should cause us to weep for this current state of disunity. And our sense of loyalty to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church should supersede all denominational loyalties. We're not like, I'm an Anglican Christian. Right. If Anglicanism is anything, it's just a doorway into connection with the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And I pray that that will be made so on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. 
that the church will be unified. I know there was an event on FSU a few weeks ago where Lutherans and Catholics were like repenting to one another and where people from all denominations were coming together. I don't know if anything will come of that, but I know that God wants something to come of that because the church is supposed to be one. And it shouldn't be the case that you can just skirt authority by starting your own church that doesn't agree with anybody before you. Or by just saying, I'll go to this church because they don't know me yet. Okay, so let me sum up. We've looked at three important lessons and a fourth in Acts. In Acts chapter 8, first, it teaches us something about the mission of God. Second, something about the culture. Third, something about the church, the oneness of the church. And also, it teaches us something about the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let me close this in prayer. Father in heaven, you've made of one blood all the peoples of the world through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And asked us to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Lord, would you so clothe us on high with the power of your Holy Spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, your hands in love, we may bring those who do not know you into the knowledge and love of you to the honor of your name.